we live in a highly connected, highly complex and fast-paced world. To slow it all down and work through the complexities, we engage in the simple art of conversation with business leaders, technologists and policymakers in a new podcast series, K-Talks. My name is Rastko Petaković and I will be one of the hosts of this program. Welcome. Today we welcome Chris Sol to the program. Chris has spent 39 years at Slaughter and May, a renowned magic circle law firm in London, often described as the most magical of the magic circle firms. Between 2008 and 2016, he was leading Slaughter and May as the firm's senior partner. He now runs Christopher Sol Associates, an independent advisory firm and continuous work with executives and key stakeholders in listed and private businesses in the areas of problem solving, transition and governance. I really enjoyed this conversation with Chris. We spoke about the current events and drew comparisons with the 2008 crisis when he was leading his firm. As you will hear, Chris is a thoughtful speaker, a true business leader and just a great guy. I hope you enjoyed this episode and share your feedback with us. Chris, welcome and thank you very much for joining our program. Rasko, it's a, a real pleasure and privilege. Thank you for having me. Well, Chris, first of all, I hope your family and, and you are safe in these difficult times. Today is April 8th and I think it's important to mark the date because uh, who knows what will happen once uh, all of this is edited and once people start listening to to us. Um and this is actually the the third or fourth week of lockdown since the outbreak of COVID-19 at least since the outbreak in Europe. And this week we learned that Wuhan has actually lifted the lockdown and that the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in intensive care. So this all feels a little bit uh, uh, surreal. What's, what's your take on this? Um, I think, to be honest, Rasko, surreal is is a very good word to describe my feelings about the situation. Um, you're right, of course, that uh, an already anxious environment is made more anxious in the UK by the fact that our Prime Minister uh, is ill is in hospital and is indeed in intensive care. Uh, so I think that that really brings it home to everybody in the UK uh, that this is very serious. And of course, the fact that there is something at the vacuum in the leadership at what is a critical time for the nation is additionally destabilizing. So an already anxious environment, certainly in the UK and of course worldwide, for us in the UK is made all the more um, concerning by Boris Johnson's illness. There was an interesting comment on Twitter uh, when the Queen gave her speech. For some reason, um, a lot of people uh, watched the Queen give her speech and one of the comments read, uh, it felt as if uh, an adult just entered the room. And it might be because of uh, all the political uncertainty going around or the people we have as elected officials in the leading countries. And so is this a feeling that sounds close to home? 
It does. And, and to, to be honest, as you will know, I, I mean, it's only, I think, the fourth or fifth time that the Queen has addressed the nation apart from her Christmas message. So that is a mark of the gravity of the situation. So, you know, we, we were all primed for something that was important for the nation. Um, she delivered, I mean, it's a short address, it was four minutes or so, but it was done with a lot of poise. I mean, she's remarkable for her nine, four or five years, quite remarkable actually. So it was done in a measured fashion and artfully done in that she obviously thanked the National Health Service for all that they were doing, everybody else who was contributing. Um, she did not try to downplay the seriousness of the situation and she referred back to the Second World War and the fact that she and her sister Margaret had made an address at that stage as well, which was quite resonant. But then she offered hope and resolution to the nation. So she, she said, basically, we will get through it and we'll meet again. And of course, that was the famous Berlin song from the Second World War that my mother, who is still alive, remembers well. So it was um, an elegantly pitched mixture of an acknowledgement that the situation is serious, thanks to everybody for their contribution, but also a look forward to that. So to your question, really, it, it, it was as if a an adult had entered the room and, and given us a sense of reassurance, which was pretty important. Yes, I, I fully agree. Um, and, and I would like to add, I think uh, health is and, and definitely should be, health and safety definitely should be the, the primary concerns for, for everyone right now. Uh, but I would also like to kind of put it out there that we also need to worry about what the, what the lockdown is doing, doing to social fabric. Um, and on top of that, what the lockdown and the pandemics is doing to global economy. I think this is important not only because of the financial consequences. I think it's also important because those financial consequences will, uh, over long term, be compounded with the health consequences. So, uh, you know, if we end up in a situation where only strong economies can actually mitigate and and fight the coronavirus virus pandemic, I think it's very important to start uh, start talking about what the what the pandemic and the lockdown are doing to to economies so what what is your take on on this issue how how do you feel the economies are faring with the current situation if you pause and you say so you know what sort of global impact are we looking at economically i think that's an interesting starting point because what asset managers are saying uh, is that we've never seen more uncertainty never seen more uncertainty and global equity markets are down 18% and it's expected that global GDP will be down 1.7% this year. Um, and that, that's globally and that's, that's the worst decline since the, the second world war. So unquestionably, the longer that the lockdown goes on, the more dramatic, dramatic the economic effects are. 
and therefore, I think that the balance has to be in saying we need the lockdown to continue for so long as we are not confident that the health service will be able to give the level of care that it needs to give to those who are going to be suffering, particularly as the crisis peaks. But I think you could rationally say that if in, let's say, five or six weeks time, uh, there is a trend line that suggests that the infection levels are on the decline rather than the rise, A, and B, that health facilities are increasingly able to cope with the cases, then at that stage you should say, we need then to say, well, we, we must look at restarting the economy, uh, making sure that uh, businesses can develop for the future and rebuild uh, and try and reopen things in a way that does not give too much risk for, for reinfection. So my own view is that, that that needs to happen a few weeks from now, but not, not maybe two or three months from now. And of course, some of the narrative is that the lockdown would need to ask, last for another two months. And that would be hard on the economy and it would be very difficult for the social fabric of many countries. You, you know, a profound concern I think is that, you know, in professional services, we are very fortunate because we live, relatively speaking, in blessed circumstances, but many people are not as fortunate as we are. And, and how long can we ask people who live, for example, in small flats to stand this? So that's that's another balancing factor in all of this. So, so I think realistically, in a few weeks time, one has to give the economy and social fabric uh, a, a balanced, share of the the attention if you like yes chris i i agree uh, and i'm sure we need to be looking at concerns over health and safety uh, together with the uh, consequences to social fabric to uh, family lives uh, to mental health and also economies and and i would just add to that that we need to re-examine how we approach this crisis so looking back uh, scientists and business people even uh, are calling this uh, a white swan and not the black swan, to use Taleb's uh, analogy. So there are lessons to be learned from, from there. And then looking at what the countries are doing right now and, and going forward, we see different countries taking different approaches. So, for example, Austria has indicated it will be easing its lockdown from next week. Uh, Sweden is in a more moderate lockdown and so on. And then all of this white swan, black swan discussion, I think it only really makes sense if we start thinking about it going forward and what are the future uh, perspectives on this. Because uh, if, if this has happened once, I think we would be wise again to uh, expect it will happen again. So how do you think different countries taking different approaches would be affecting the economy that is so globalized right now? Um, I mean, first of all, you're right, I think, about um, 
the white swan rather than the black swan thing. I think, you know, we, we need to realize, and this is a big wake up call actually, for the fact that Bill Gates, as you might've seen in his TED talk from 2015, you know, he said, look, this is coming everybody, this is coming. And don't think that, that it's not coming because I believe that, that the health crisis um, that would be brought upon by a pandemic is not something that we should ignore. And of course he was right. So this, this is a major wake up call that really reinforces the point that health underpins everything, absolutely everything. Because if you haven't got a healthy population around the world, you haven't actually got an economy. So that I think it's the resting proposition that, that it, we are faced with absolutely now. So I agree with you that we need as we go forward to realize that this can and will happen again. And we need to be better prepared next time. So one of the consequences, I think, of all of this is that more money will go into healthcare as it should. More thinking and research will go into seeing how we might deal with it in a, in a better way uh, next time. Specifically to your question, I think about how different responses from different jurisdictions play into that. To me, an absolutely glaring message actually is that Korea dealt with this crisis in a very professional way and without some of the dramatic lockdown measures of pressure that we've had to face. Uh, to me, a, I, I, I think a critical learning is that the way that Korea dealt with it, which of course was a great deal of testing. So when I saw um, uh, one of their ministers interviewed three weeks ago, she said that that stage they had tested 260,000 people, which is a huge number. So testing, then tracking contacts, then quarantining was a very... Uh, deliberate way in which they actually controlled the spread of the disease in a way that allowed them to adopt a mitigation strategy rather than a suppression strategy. So I think a career is informative in terms of, of building a system that for the future would be, you would think, more robust than the way we've approached it now. And the second example, of course, that you would take in Europe is Germany, and you'll be watching that very strikingly. But Germany have been very organized to our eyes in Britain in the way that they've tested a lot of people and done with, with huge efficiency. And that a, a means that their numbers are more reliable because they know how many infections they have, but it also allows them actually to be very prompt in, um, in treating those who are ill. And just a small example is that we have some friends who have a niece in Germany and over last weekend, she got a fever and she rang the helpline and said, I think I have a fever. And they said, okay, we'll send someone with a test. 10 minutes later, she got an SMS from the team coming with the test saying, we will be there in 12 minutes. We will leave the test outside your door, take the test, put it back outside the door and we will SMS the results to you tomorrow. That is amazing. That is amazing. Now, 
And that is also, you know, that's another lesson. So careers, uh, mitigation strategy, the value of testing is reinforced, I think, by, by Germany. And on the other side of the equation, I think you look at the United States and there's a sense that they have really been slow and not perhaps as coordinated as they might have been in addressing all of this. So you're right, I think, that the various national responses to this crisis are informative and one hopes will be constructive in the way that they allow future governments to prepare for coronavirus COVID-20. Well, yes, I and, and, and yes, I agree with you. Um, going away a little bit from the health topics. Yes, the different countries are applying different strategies when it comes to containing and combating the, the, the virus. At the same time, different countries seem to be taking different approach when it comes to recovering their economies. And what do you think are the main concerns and the main levers that the countries should be considering when thinking about the measures to help their economies recover? Right. Um, well, number one, of course, is fiscal stimulus. And uh, in the UK, of course, you know, we, we've had a major fiscal stimulus, so 300 billion pounds of short-term debt available to businesses to sustain business short-term loans to business that are in dire need. And we've seen that um, in the States. I'm sure it's happened in Serbia um, in differing ways in, in other jurisdictions. But fiscal stimulus, putting money, available money into the system is obviously critically important. Second element um, is employees and self-employed people how how do you sustain just ordinary day-to-day -day life of people who no longer have work to do uh, with employers who potentially cannot afford to pay them because they have nothing to sell and so what you've seen in the uk uh is is the government saying that they would effectively pay 80% of salaries up to two and a half thousand pounds to employees who are furloughed, as the phrase goes, so sort of put on suspension uh, for the period of the outbreak. So that really is the state standing behind employers and saying, we will pay you or pay the employees so that you do not make those people redundant. And then the third limb, of course, is doing something somewhat equivalent to self-employed people. It's more complicated for self-employed people, but that is an additional element that you are seeing. Those are, I think, key building blocks in the UK. There's also, of course, the notion of helicopter money that, that I believe is being uh, considered in Serbia and we're seeing it in the States. And that, that's another approach that is just providing money to people because how else are they going to manage? Because one of the critical issues that we've seen in the UK, and it's a major concern, is that however complete and thoughtful 
your fiscal packages, your employee and self-employed support packages? How do you find systems that will deliver money to people now rather than in five weeks or six weeks or seven weeks time? So certainly I see that helicopter money strategies may help to alleviate what would be short-term hardship. Um, but those, I, I think those are the key tools that, that many governments are deploying and need to deploy. Questions, a number of questions I think arise from that because you, you are having to throw all this money at the problem. Do you worry about inflation in due course because you're putting so much more money into the system? So how do you, how do you modulate your protection mechanisms in a way that does not um, endanger stability of, um, of the currency in, in the future. So that is one concern. And of course, you, you know, what you are doing, and I think this is a major concern, is you're piling up a huge amount of debt potentially for future generations. So how will that debt be paid back? But for the moment, I, I think that most, most um, Treasury departments are focusing on the fact that you just have to deal with uh, the immediate situation. What is quite striking, Rasko, actually, is that there's increasing debate, it seems, in the UK between the Treasury and the Department of Health. Because, unsurprisingly, you have the Department of Health saying we cannot relax our constraints too soon because that's a danger to health. And you have the Treasury saying, we have to get the economy moving again as soon as we safely can. So it goes back to one of your earlier questions, where do you find that tension? Uh, how do you balance that, that tension between uh, the health of the economy and the health of the populace? It's very delicate to strike that. Right. I, I think health is the, the, the factor X that, that is the unknown in this, uh, in, in this crisis. But for the, for the rest of it, and especially the monetary and fiscal part, uh, this crisis pretty much resembles the one in 2008. Uh, so uh, what, do you think any fair comparisons could be drawn between the two crises? Um, very interesting question. And the, the answer is yes. And no, obviously. So, so um, the 2008 crisis, which I, I remember graphically, actually, because it occurred just after I'd become senior partner at Slaughter and May. Um, and it was extraordinary be because you know, in the summer of 2008, there was the you know, too much debt feeling um, developing. And then there was a weekend in September 2008 we were lucky because our firm was working with the UK government on this, but there was an actual sentiment, I remember it well in the office on Friday afternoon, there were, people were in a state of shock and there was a, a clear feeling that perhaps the banks would not open on Monday. It was quite extraordinary. I'd never experienced anything like that. So they did open on Monday because there was a massive bailout over the weekend and so on. But, but 
what the 2008 crisis was, was of course a, a financial system failure, an endogenous, as the phrase goes, financial system failure. What we've seen here is, is an external event, an exogenous system. So it's like an asteroid hitting the earth, effectively. This is just huge, bang. Um, so it's not a financial system failure. It's, it's an external uh, asteroid hitting the earth. At a time, thankfully, at least, when, when the financial system is much more robust than it was in 2008. So the, the causes of the crisis, crises, are different. But to your earlier point, many of the economic and um, personal impacts in terms of, of uh, livelihoods are very similar. And those impacts in terms of managing professional service firms are, of course, quite similar because the, the obvious concerns about uh, the shape of the shape of the business of the firm changing radically, there not being as much traditional business for professional services firms to do, clients being less able to pay. So um, managing through the crisis, certainly within professional services, has a lot of similarities in 2020 to how we approached it in 2008. Well, I really like that you moved uh, uh, to, this, uh, to this issue of the 2008 crisis that you did. And, you know, how did it feel from your personal angle taking over uh, the helm of the firm, uh, <laughs> such, a, such a great firm uh, at, at such a difficult time? So how, how, what kind of personal struggles did you go through uh, in those times? How, what did you feel uh, during that weekend of, of September 2008? <laughs> well, it was, very, it was quite striking, actually, because step one was that we were scheduled to have a partners meeting can you believe on that very saturday so step one um at 4 p.m on the friday was for me to send a message to the partner saying dear partners there are other things to do <laughs> and to to have a partners meeting so so step one was really sort of dealing with the immediate administration of the, the partners meeting but but in terms of you know so how did I think about that? I thought that the critical thing now really is to address the, the core values of the firm. So as we look to the way in which this firm copes with the economic implications for the firm of the crisis and the economic implications for our clients of this crisis, we must we must hold true to our core values actually so it was very clear to me that as a firm uh, what we needed to do would be to look after our people so it was critical to me that we looked after our people it was critical to me that we um, did the right thing for our clients and that we were there for them because, you know, the week after the crisis broke was a very difficult week for them. They were concerned as to what all this meant for their credit lines, for their businesses, for their people. So we, we needed to be available to them and giving them practical advice about what they needed to do in terms of liquidity, in terms of um, facilities that they might need. Um, 
So that was the initial response. Uh, I would say also, you know, from my perspective, it was very important to communicate with everybody, to present to the firm, legal and non-legal staff, um, a sense of control. Everybody needed to know that this was a scary, unusual situation, but that um, the partners and I as senior partner were not phased by it. It was something that we were going to address in a way that would look after everybody, that would preserve the business, uh, that would see us through difficult times, and that at the end of it, um, we would be judged by the way in which we had actually addressed uh, our stakeholders during the crisis. So I think, uh, number one, culture and value is critically important. Number two, communicating around those cultures and values a lot. Number three, walking the floors a lot. I did a lot of walking around the office a lot at that stage. I mean, I, I tended to do that quite a lot anyway, but I think being around, being evidently there, wanting the best for everybody, um, hopefully being a relatively calm and cheerful presence and not a doom and gloom presence uh, was very important. So, so those were the kind of themes that I uh, looked to deploy to navigate through that crisis. And I'm sure that, you know, my successes at the firm will be doing very similarly now. In, in times of lockdown, one uh, often turns to books and, and online courses and, and TED Talks and, and stuff like that. And I, I stumbled across uh, a Stanford professor saying how uh, any crisis, but especially those major ones, are a great opportunity to communicate with the people. Because whilst in normal circumstances, you don't, you know, you, you have to put an effort in order to communicate the right messages. At the time of crisis, it feels as if uh, you are on center stage, as if all of the... Mm lights are directed to you and as if you have the the attention the ears of everyone at the firm everyone at the at the business and the 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 larger the business or the larger the organization the more uh the more attention you get in those in those times but at the same time it is much more difficult because it is not it is no longer about the technique of conveying the messages. It is no longer about the channels of communication. All the channels are open at once. It is down to the content of communication. It is down to being able to communicate the right messages and having the right content, the content that will essentially uh, bring some, uh, some confidence, some high spirits, some optimism uh, uh, to the people. So this, I think, resonates quite, quite a lot with what you said. How, how difficult is it to kind of have to revisit your, your roots and your core values and your kind of core content at the time when you're just uh, being uh, hit by the asteroid, as you, as you uh, put it? Um, 
the answer, Roscoe, is is that it isn't easy, of course, because you know you have a lot of things on your mind, and you have some concerns, of course, because you know you you have a big responsibility for um, the ongoing well-being of the firm and everybody who's a stakeholder. So so it's not easy, and I, but but I I think the the critical thing really is to take a deep breath um, and I think two things really. Number one, realize that the tone that you set and the things that you do and the way that you look and behave will be important. So, you know, partners and maybe particularly the leaders of the firm uh, will be watched very carefully in this time. So, acts of kindness that you offer, energy rather than lethargy that you display as you walk around the firm, um, the appreciation that you show to people who are committed to making things um, work as they should in a difficult environment is important. So, so that sort of example setting, even down to physical demeanor, uh, is important. Um, communications, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the, the way it's done is important. Uh, and there was a rather good piece actually by Alastair Campbell about Andrew Cuomo in the New York Times, I think 10 days ago. So Andrew Cuomo, um, I think everybody would say has come out of this well in terms of the way that he conducts himself. So he, he does daily briefings, as you know. Um, and, and a number of components are well articulated by Alistair Campbell. So first of all, he's calm and composed in the way that he presents. Secondly, he provides detail around the nature of the, of the crisis. So, you know, thinking back to 2008, you know, one thing that I did try to do in my communications was not to be coy about the fact that this was a tricky situation and that some parts of the firm would be quiet, uh, and actually to say some parts of the firm will be quiet, but other parts will be busy. And, you know, many, many lawyers will be able to be deep deployed in other parts of the firm. So providing real detail, not just waffle, is, is important. Thirdly, he picks out, I think this is incredibly important, empathy. You know, leaders are often defined by empathy. You know, one, one thinks of the, I think, outstanding New Zealand leader, um, Ardern, you know, at the time of the dreadful bombing in Christchurch, I mean, she was authentically empathetic with um, a community that had been dreadfully hit by a terrible crisis, but genuine, authentic empathy um, and appreciation of, of what people are doing. For, yeah, for example, at a time like this, the IT team, you know, I'm sure your IT team is, is doing super work, but, but actually realizing that and, and thanking them is very important. The next, the, the next limb is thinking ahead. You, you know, I think it's, it's very important uh, that, that as you communicate, particularly in this time, you, you need to say, look, 
how are people going to feel in four weeks' time if they are still cooped up at home? And I understand that you are beginning to become frustrated, but I'm there with you. I'm feeling the frustration. You know, talk to me, help me help you to think through it. And all of that maybe comes together in, in being inspirational, which is a rather grand word, I think. But what one tries to do is create a sense of trust that you will be able to help the firm through this, that you will be there for everybody, and that you are an able person to be steering the ship through choppy waters. So that those, I think, are well articulated as Andrew Cuomo's qualities of leadership. And those, those come together, I think, in in the way in which you communicate regularly and you're, you're there for people and you're leading from the front, but it's very important to communicate. Um, I began by mentioning that uh, actually Wuhan is lifting its lockdown now. And the previous guest on this program uh, was a colleague from a Chinese law firm uh, based out of uh, Beijing. And, and he actually made a very good point about uh, the Chinese word for crisis being uh, risk opportunity. So essentially, the, yes. the, the word crisis translates as risk opportunity. And I was thinking about on, on that note, uh, what kind of opportunities do you see in this crisis? And how, how soon should we think about opportunities in, in times of crisis in general? Um, which I think is a great question. No, and I think, I think there are two limbs to that. I think there's a, a personal opportunity for all of us as human beings. And then I think that there is a business opportunity for, um, for professional services, businesses, if you like. And, and the personal opportunity is this, and this is my own reaction to it, which is that I find myself appreciating the simpler things in life much more fulsomely. So the presence of family, uh, a walk in the park, um, birdsong, you, you know, there are no planes. That, so so you, you, you hear birds in a way. So, so for me, this has been, um, it shouldn't be really, but it's, it's been a revelation that there are very precious, simple things that in our fully automated world, we've sort of taken for granted. So, so I think that the personal opportunity is for us to hold that thought as we go forward and we get back to automation and realize that there are very special, simple things that we must not take for granted. Another aspect of that, I think, is that I suspect we may become less materialistic, that we may come out of this thinking, you know, we've coped with not buying stuff in the shops. And we actually realize that we've, you know, we've, we've, we've got all of the CDs or whatever that we probably need, and we've got access to lots of entertainment. So do we need to buy that watch or that handbag or that ever? So I have a feeling that we can, A, appreciate the simple things as human beings better and take care of each other better, and B, become slightly less materialistic that won't be great for the recovery of the economy but i i think that we might so i think 
number one, there is a personal opportunity for all of us to come out with a rather more rounded approach to ourselves and what we, what we value in life, which is great. In business, I, I think that the opportunity really is for us to take stock and say, look, um, what will be um, actually businesses for the future that we as professional services can help to service and drive? Uh, Lim one and limb two, what will be the, if, if you like, the defensive businesses that will always be necessary that, that we can help to sustain and make sure that we give best advice to? So, for example, if you know, if I was sitting in your seat now, Rasco, uh, I will be saying, look, so going forward, obviously, areas like pharma, healthcare, but also, of course, tech, you know, various aspects of tech. We all knew, we knew this over the years, but this, I think, writes in neon letters the fact that the importance of tech cannot be underestimated. So making sure that we really think through how the attributes of our professional service firms can be shaped around the businesses of tomorrow in an artful and attractive way so that the, the businesses that over the next five years are going to thrive say, we've got to have Karanovich on our side and we've got to have them because they think about these things in a, in a constructive, forward-looking way. So the, the, the business opportunity, I think, is, um, is in thinking for the future and this forces us to do it. The other element, of course, is that, you know, if the firms that do the right thing in this crisis, um, the team, the staff will not forget that and clients will not forget that. So another opportunity, I think, here is to differentiate between those firms that do the right thing, look after their people, avoid redundancies if at all possible. Um, and also work with clients who may be going through tough times. Certainly our experience in 2008 was that we were very fortunate we avoided redundancies, and, and I think that that faith that we show with, uh, with the team and with clients is repaid over time because people say these are, these are people that we want to work with in the future. So... Those are the strands, I think, of the business opportunity. So um, as the phrase goes, you know, one must never waste a crisis. So um, there are definite opportunities in this crisis. Well, th thank you so much, Chris, for, for sharing all of this. Uh, it has been a great, uh, great pleasure talking to you uh, for the podcast. And maybe if you have some final messages to share with, uh, with the audience, please go ahead. I think my final message to the the audience would be look after each other, actually. You, you, you know, I think what has been very striking to me over the last three, four weeks is the number of messages that people have shared with people, that, with people they haven't seen for a while. So a very precious thing really is the reaching out that has, has happened and, and that we mustn't lose that. The second point, and I think this is great, is the amount of humor that we've seen, you, you know, there are lots and lots of, of rather 
hilarious things going around. And so that's a very precious thing that, you know, we human beings thrive on humor. And even when things are tough, uh, it's, it's very precious to, uh, to be able to laugh. And third, the thirdly, and this is really incredibly important, is the, the value of the team, team spirit working together. When things are as difficult as they are at the moment, the, the integration of the team, the friendship that professionals have with each other uh, is incredibly precious. So, so I'm sure that you're, you, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, what the team spirit at Karanovich is fantastic. So, um, you will be making the most of that and that will serve you in great stead going forward. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chris, very much for this conversation. Thank you very much, Raskin.